Welcome to the Royal Diaries, Unlocking History. My name is Julia. My name is Felicia. We are sisters who love books, history, and talking about them both. We're doing a deep dive into the Royal Diaries series. Come with us as we learn about the girls who became women that shaped history. Nzinga, Warrior Queen of Matamba by Patricia McKissack presents the diary of 13-year-old Nzinga, a 16th century West African princess who loves to hunt and hopes to lead her kingdom one day against the invasion of the Portuguese slave traders. So a few things before we get started. Okay. I just want to say that organizing this episode was a struggle for a few reasons. One, my very, very white and Eurocentric history lessons in elementary and secondary school taught me almost nothing about like the African continent and its peoples or their various histories. Uh, and two, when I finally did get classes about the African continent, hello, let's just talk about the slave trade. Yeah. Which again, very important, but at the same time though, that's part of very long and ancient history. We're literally the cradle of civilization. Yeah, exactly. Like the first peoples came from, and we only want to talk about it when the white people show up. Yeah, we only ever really frame the various nations and peoples within Africa as this really massive continent, as this complete monolith. And we do want to get into some type of details, but at the same time, though, whenever we try to really go and unpack the histories or anything like that, it always needs to be buttressed up by white European narratives. I'm a white person talking about this type of history and obviously to learn about history is available to anybody but it's always being cognizant of both your positioning but also who was writing the history that you're then reading about yeah that's the biggest thing too exactly or even though they have a rich history who are the people that actually wrote about it and then how did they decide to write about it slash quote-unquote what is writing to which yes. we can go and get into as well Fair i enough. think especially with this book in particular and for those of you who are just wondering why do i care this much and am i overthinking it well i mean i'd rather go and overthink it and try to think critically about how this about the subject as much as i can and i know that this is a fun podcast and everything but i think that we're pretty thoughtful about who we are and who we are talking about and how we're talking about them yeah pretty much but i think also be honest about the idea of intent you know the intention of this is to explore share learn about histories that we we don't even know about and then we're sort of sharing it with each other and then hoping other people will share with us if they know more about certain things than we do we are not calling ourselves the armchair experts in anything At we all. i would love to hear like if there's a if somehow there's, there's like a, a professor of angola and angolan history or even if who knows maybe even a person from angola <laughs> comes across this podcast and is i will tell you about the history of my country uh that would be amazing I would love to hear that. That would be great to hear it. It's, you know, we have to do the history of Canada when we're in grade 7, grade 8. I wonder, in Angola, do they have to sit down and do the history generally of their country? That's usually like a crash course in most school education. So even if someone says, I only got the crash course in my country's history when I was a kid. I'm, it's still more it's than still we more know. than we got. And, again, <laughs> oh, God. Oh. 
going to Nzinga. Yes. Uh, we're basically going to hone in on who she was and then try to put her in a bit of a larger context. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to have a little bit of fun time uh, problematizing the book a little bit with love, right? Like Fair in the way enough. that we do with anything. Yeah. So, but before we really go and get started on that, what did you think about the book? What do you remember about the book the first time you read it? I think it was probably my first encounter with someone from Africa, like a historical figure in their story as an individual. So not like you were saying, you just learn about the slave trade and it's just sort of the monolith of African people mm -hmm. who are just taken, yes. not them as individuals. So learning about their individual stories was not something you did. And then the fact that she is in a position of power and a ruler. So that was the first time I had learned about that when I was younger. So this was a really cool book for me. Mm -hmm. um, Rereading it. I enjoyed it just as much as I did then. My biggest complaint is, why is it so small? It's a really short Why book. is it so short? I, I mean, mean, there's like really, and there's actual good plot intriguey stuff here mm -hmm. that I really appreciated. You know, is it the priest who's the Portuguese guy who's the spy? Or is it her dad's former slave who's now a warrior bodyguard who's the spy? Double crossing. That stuff could have been really dug into, a like stretched out more. I would have liked to hear more about the culture, more of the practices. It was very high level. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I that would be my only complaint is that this is a great story. It moved very quickly because mm -hmm. it's very short. Yeah, it's only 86 pages. I mean, one thing I will go and give this book major props to, it has almost 40 pages of history, background, yeah. everything. Like, so, there's a lot of historical context. Yeah, because all, all the books sort of come with a historical note and sort of what happens and putting things in context. But for the sake of this podcast, I did not read that so that I will be more ignorant when you come to share more things about it with me. Yeah. But yeah, no. Um. Oh, and also, I think even subconsciously, or maybe maybe not maybe for in for history people Nzinga's badass I'm sitting on a slave's back to make a chair kind of thing that's an iconic image that the first time you've in, you encounter it you're just what is happening here I yeah I yeah so so that that was the other big takeaway what I remember when I was younger yeah no, I mean, I think I think the thing with this story in particular, though, not to be that person, but even reading it, I'm like, oh, we really want to go and make the Portuguese guy, whose people are really cool as slavery, not a bad person. Oh, yeah. I was skeptical I was... even as a small child. Excuse me. Yeah, the one Portuguese person she hangs out with turns out to be a pretty cool dude. Okay, so spoiler alert, when it was that, it was the bodyguard who was going to betray but it was them. like a, but it was but a it, fake it's a, out. it's a fake out but initially when i was reading them oh no you didn't you actually made the black man the traitorous villain and now you're making this portuguese white savior nonsense real and he yeah. rescues her from this foiled kidnapping attempt where they were going to throw her on a slave ship and then later on it's revealed that the whole thing is a ruse. The priest guy genuinely thought he was rescuing her but the rescue was kind of not needed because the bodyguard guy, the black man, Ninjali, he's actually playing spy so he can try to endure himself with the Portuguese so he can figure out what the heck they're up to. But, at the, but in that moment I was reading it, I'm like, oh please. Yeah, no. I was I was about to throw the book down. I was, I was are you serious? 
this. We can go and talk about this a little bit later, but I think, I do think that Patricia McKissack really showed a lot of love and care though with this book. Mm -hmm. I mean, her offers note at the very end, deeply, deeply moving. She's an iconic, like she was an iconic figure of children's literature, but particularly of African-American children's literature too as well. Mm -hmm. Even though we have some of our qualms with this book, it still is really significant because representation politics will not liberate us and will not fix all the problems. But th this book matters. It does. This book matters because in the tradition of American girls with, with Abby being the first African-American American girl, it, like regardless of, oh, people saying she's a former slave and this and that, I'm like, Abby is very meaningful to a lot of people mm -hmm. and I would never take away from that and I feel like Nzinga is the same way. Yeah. And the fact that she is, she's a princess. Yes. And I think that's what's wonderful about this series is because it's saying princess doesn't just mean Euro, white, Centric fairy tale princess. Mm. I love it because we're not even having to make up a person exactly. to make sure everybody feels they're being represented. This is a real lady, and I'm going to tell you this real woman's story instead of Disney trying to make up a princess story to be able to sell frog, money. frog princess merchandise. Even though we do love Tiana, even though she, we love Tiana, but she but was she, a frog for ninety percent for ninety percent of the movie. Why was she a frog? I know. Why can't we let black people be black people? Exactly. Exactly. Anyways. I really do value this book and I understand its importance, but I do think it says something that one, we are told that she is writing in Portuguese, mm -hmm. which we do know canonic she spoke and she read and she wrote in the language. Yeah. But at the same time though, it's a framing that happens in this book that does make me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Why couldn't she be writing something in her own native language? And did they even have a written language though? But at the same time storytellers and it could be like this is the story of my life well and also at the same time too though it's a uh, there are different ways of writing too it's when the talking drum is like mm -hmm. letting them know the few weeks in ahead her dad's coming home that is a language that is a way of communicating and a way of reading and writing right i'll never go and forget when i had a prof come into class and he held up his own copy of like wampum belt is this writing and you have this moment of a is it though it's just like a bunch of beads but it's actually no this is another way of communicating that we just don't value right it's because we don't understand it and because we just look at it for what it is on the surface and actually that happens something similar to that happens in this book where they're making beads and like bracelets and stuff mm -hmm. she's telling the story and that was actually that was very clever in terms of incorporating how folk art is used to tell stories but then that's also exposition wise how we get the story of how did Nzinga's father and her mother get together yep. and who are her siblings etc and how did they all come together and, mm -hmm. and create this bond which is you tie the bracelets together which to be honest is done a whole lot I think more organically than some of the previous books where it's that oh no let me go and mention my sibling yeah here. it was much more more finesse to it exactly yes we don't really talk too often about the writing in these books it's true I mean we 
we touched on it briefly, you know, with Elizabeth about how it's hard to put in exposition stuff in a historical mm-hmm. context. We also talked about how sometimes you give almost too much information about this person, but they're really trying to give a sense of who this person is, but they're just a bummer. Yeah. I'm looking at you, Isabel. Yeah. So in this one, I think it was, she did a great job of doing that. I, like I said, my only complaint is I wish there was more. I think is that a little bit more of context of what was the day-to-day like for her a bit more and what was the culture like too. Yeah, it didn't even feel like we had a full proper year. I mean, we did, but, but like... But I don't feel like we did because I, I felt like there would have been more talk about, I'm thinking about in the context of, I know what the holidays and the, the different ritual things happen for mm-hmm. us seasonally. Yeah. So when I'm reading in the Elizabeth book about, you know, the Christmas celebration and stuff, if I wasn't from a place where we don't know Christmas, then I this is interesting to read about this tradition that happens annually. What are those even, annual sort of ritual tradition things? Even with the Cleopatra book too as well, there was a sense of time passing as well. Well, because she was on that journey. So I yeah. think, and that was the thing too, is that she writes about this journey after it happens. Yes. And so then the same way that when you're reflecting back on something as opposed to writing about it, it more in the moment, you tend to leave out more detail when you're reflecting back on something tell me a story from you know four months ago about this thing you did You'll probably... I mean we're in the middle of the pandemic so we're all doing the same thing but you know what I mean I it would probably be summarized in you know four to five sentences versus if I said sit me down and tell me about your day and then yeah. we actually have a more dragging it out kind of conversation mm-hmm. so let's just go and have a brief bio overview of Nzinga's life which I just want to say we've kind of have realized that so far all of these women's lives were kind of a bummer Mm. so the trend continues oh man i know right i okay i want to also say this last thing about this book nzinga being the firstborn child and also trying to get her dad's attention and her dad's favor and being kind of a tomboy and being i'm as good as a son and i can do boy things high key related high key related for when i was reading that and i was oh and I, it brought me back. There was this whole thing of my dad's a firstborn and I'm a firstborn. So I wanted to bond and be firstborns and all that stuff with him. So I, I totally understood where she was coming from. You That's understand all. where she's coming from? But yeah. now let's learn when she, where she actually, came from. Actually came from. So Nzinga, she was born in 1583, roughly around. We don't have an exact date of her birth. Her father was, which, by the way, I just want to say, I'm doing my best with the pronunciations, by the way. But if I flubbed them up it's just a reflection of me and what i can and what i cannot do we're doing our best we're doing our best her father was uh, nigolo kilomambo kia kasenda and her mother was kengala ka nikombe and she was one of her father's slave wives mm-hmm. so there's a little bit of let's polish this up and make it nicer for the children but yeah we like, under- but we understand why yeah he had like freed her in the book or whatever yeah and from the outset she was viewed as being very special and according to the familial lore 
she was a breech birth and her umbilical cord was wrapped around her neck, which if you know anything about obstetrics, it's not ideal. No. And her name comes from the Kibundu verb kujinga, which means to twist and slash or turn. If you were born either in a breech birth or with your umbilical cord around your neck and you survived, you, with- were, con- you were considered that you were going to go and be mighty and strong because you had the fight you- to be alive. Yeah, well, and basically this kid survived their birth. Exactly. Like, don't stop them. So in terms of did this happen, didn't it happen, I'm inclined to believe that it happened when we literally have naming rights. It tells us something about her. She grew up in what's now modern day Angola. Do you know where Angola is on the map? Yes-ish. Okay, so... I know where it is in proximity to Nigeria because I had to do a social studies project on Nigeria back in the day. So if you go, you look at the African continent, sort of a reverse P with a little bit of a V at the bottom, it's more towards the bottom of the V on the left side towards the P. Like right above South Africa, it's bordered by Namibia, all of that. They follow along a river too, Mm. which is the one that she travels up at towards the end of the book. Ah. So yeah, that's where she is. At the time of her birth, Portugal had been been expanding its empire within the African continent, particularly along the Angolese coast, almost a purity 40 years at that point. There wasn't really a formal king or kingdom before that. It was sort of like a loose collection of tribes and clans, everything like that, whereas we're going to go in an agreement with each other, we're going to be fighting with each other, everything like that. However, yeah, Portuguese showed up and, yo, we need to go and unite because <laughs> these people will fuck us up pretty much. Yes. Don't. Yeah, they don't need to divide and conquer. We're already divided, so they will conquer us. Exactly. So let's undivide. And they basically became united underneath her father's, his family line. It goes back to, I think it's four previous generations, don't quote me on that, mm-hmm. that they wanted to establish this working kingdom, Matamba. That's sort of like the situation that she was born into, where mm-hmm. the Portuguese were already there, and they were in constant conflict with them because of it. In terms of trying to go and take territory, trying to go and create either alliances or deals with them. I think one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that colonialism in Africa was really a slow process. You had Portuguese settlements, you had French settlements along like the northern part of the African continent, in Algeria, Morocco, and then eventually the Dutch and the British, they show up too as well. Proper, we're going to chop this continent up into different territories. And claim parts of it. And claim parts more formally. That really didn't happen actually until the late 1880s, early 1890s with the scramble for Africa, mm-hmm. which pretty much happened over a 30-year period. Now, that being said, I don't think that goes and diminishes, though, the impact that European presence had in these groups of people. We don't really have a lot of direct information on her early life. Fun fact, the Portuguese missionary, though, that we were being really mean about, yes. uh, so he, he was a real person. Oh, and and he actually did. I, I know, right? And he did go and write some pretty comprehensive histories and biographies of her family and also of her rule too. Thank you. But at the same time, was he trying to grab intel? To, I know exactly how these people work. 
Plus also we can take them down. Plus also it gets into a bit of a quagmire of it is his perspective mm. on watching other people's rituals and he doesn't understand it, so he's probably very judgy and well and also too, it's you don't I don't know about you, but if I had somebody from across enemy lines come up to me and say, Hello, I would like to know some information about like your people. I don't know if I'd be going and telling them the exact freaking truth, right? Fair enough. What we have to go and like work off with in terms of like her childhood and everything we don't have a lot going Mm. with it she wasn't considered to be the actual heir that was going to be her brother her dad really did indulge her and really did in terms of her education what she was allowed to go and see and what she had access to because instead of being seen like oh he's preparing her to undermine it's like oh like he's just indulging her you know like this is just like for his own whim but after her dad dies her brother then becomes king and her brother in this book is set up to become of a very weak he can't be a warrior leader type of person i mean there's is a little bit of grossness because he's overweight and obviously he's weak-willed which you know it's his own thing but yeah so at the point when her father died she had been married we don't know what happened to her spouse but he died and she Mm. had a bunch of male concubines too Mm. and at that point she also had a son and when her brother came to the throne he got really freaking paranoid of what would happen if something happened to him. So he may or may not have definitely did have her kid murdered. Oh my gosh. But it gets worse. Oh no. I just want to go and say this. I read this line and then I went and I looked at a bunch of different places. Where's their source? Where did they go and they find this? But I saw enough people going and saying this. Okay, there probably is a grain of truth in this. He probably had Nzinga and her sisters sterilized. Oh, gross. Awful. Exactly. I mean, she never had any children after her son was killed. Fair enough. That would track. That happens. That's like very short-sighted because did he have children? Well, he did have a son. But what if that kid gets bit by a snake or something? Now you're, oh shoot. Well, we're going to go and get to his kid. Okay. But anyways, this is all happening around 1617, late 16 teens right what happens is is that her brother asked her if she's going would please be the ambassador to the portuguese Um, in 1621 i would not be doing anything for him i wouldn't do anything for him either frankly but but if it means i can get the hell out of this house where he's killed my child and maybe probably sterilized me i will i will eat with the enemy before i have to eat with this bozo pretty much and at this point they've been her people have been defeated things are not going really well at all Mm -hmm. so it's like you need to go and negotiate a treaty with the portuguese on our behalf and that's something that happens in this book too where her dad sends her out to negotiate with the portuguese so basically do you want to agree to do slave trading sure it sounds great because they think about it the way that they do slave trading not on the industrial scale of packing hundreds of people into a boat to never come to never come back and then to work until they die yeah so that point is true However, there is a little bit of bringing her later history into her younger history in the book. Her whole, she sat on one of her servants as a chair. Yeah. That doesn't go and happen until she's in her 30s. Okay. Yeah, when she's doing her whole role as ambassador to the Portuguese. Yeah. It's like, that's a later event. But understandably, because that's one of the things that she's most
most well known for. Yeah, they wanted to bring it into this book. Well, and also too is that I think it really establishes her character of in like the context of the diary. She is strong willed. She understands who she is. She's not going to submit or be seen as unequal. Very beginning, she's shooting her mouth off, and she's trying to be seen, and she doesn't seem to understand that there is a certain level of tact and also diplomacy being strategic in terms of how do you want to approach this kind of stuff. So then she ends up showing it when she ends up encountering the Portuguese. And I mean, she did that in real life though, right? Yes. She became the ambassador. She was only offered a mat. She went and she asked for one of her servants so she could go and sit on him. Which, you know, I have my own thoughts about, on one hand, like, it is that boss moment of a, I'm not going to go and sit on the mat and be seen as demeaned. However, you're literally sitting on somebody's back. Yeah. Makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. But at the same time, though, like, you don't want to argue in bad faith, right? No. And that is one of those things, like, what is equality and, like, what is trying to be on the same level with someone look like? And it's, well, if I have to achieve equality by literally sitting on the back of another person, is it true equality? Instead, Portuguese person, why don't you sit your ass down on the ground with me on no chairs Mm -hmm. if that's what you want to do. But that's clearly not what they wanted to do, so. And also probably not a possibility too, right? Yeah. By virtue of the fact that not just is she not Portuguese and she is the other, capital O, Mm -hmm. but she's also a woman too. And to be a woman is to be constantly the other. Anyways. Anyways, (laughs) I I have thoughts on that. yeah. yeah. Anyways, so... I, I basically won't put it on a, a coffee mug and write, like, girl boss. Pretty much. That's what I wouldn't do. Yeah, no, there's there's no point in going and monetizing any of this. So she basically goes, she sets up this treaty. Everything goes really well. She is actually the pretty freaking boss, so... Yeah. Like, she was really great because she was also fluent in Portuguese. Ah, yes. The language of the enemy. She could read and write and speak in Portuguese, which really does always go and set you at an advantage. After the negotiation, there was some more internal issues, essentially. And then her brother died a few years later. And some people are like, oh, did he commit suicide? Was he poisoned? Was he, aside from being poisoned, was he stabbed? We don't really know. The circumstances of his death. But were they shady or were they normal? They were a little shady. They were shady. And the thing is, too, is that it was also shady because his son also died at that time, too, as well. What a happy coincidence. Which, you know, but I think at the same time, too, though, in terms of shady stuff, this is no, this isn't much different from what a lot of other people have done. I'm oh, not saying no. it's good, oh, but no, it's no. not like... It's, it's equal opportunity power struggles, exactly. regardless of where you are. <laughs> no, she went in, she took the throne, had to go and fight against at the same time, though, should she be there as a woman as a ruler which again we're not really surprised about at the same time though she didn't use family genealogy plus also she went and she pointed out both her skills and mastery in her relationship with the portuguese not in terms of i'm really good friends with them but i can go and out with them basically it's more than just saying oh because of my lineage i deserve to be here instead she's saying regardless of lineage i'm the best advocate for our people against these people so that's why you should pick me or let me rule she pretty much ended 
up going and doing that. And at that point, so she got into the front and things were like, it's always like the easiest, but things are fine. And she ruled for a really long time though, by the way. She got the throne in the 1620s and she died in 1663. Wow. Yeah. And so a couple decades. That's like a, that rivals Queen Elizabeth the first, who's like 45, 46 years. 45 years. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. No, she was around for a really long time. Good for her. Exactly. For her. Pretty much what happened is that the Dutch West India Company starts to go and establish itself within the African continent and they realize that that actually is a really good way of aligning ourselves against the Portuguese because I think one of the things that a lot of people don't always realize and to go and step out of just Nzinga for a moment is that the first enslaved Africans were brought over to North America in 1619 mm-hmm. but the slave trade had been going down in Brazil and throughout South America for almost a hundred years previously yeah there have been people who have been like, enslaved and people have been say, getting imported people, people put on ships against their will one way or the other exactly to do labor that they don't want to do who are they're not going to get paid for and they're not going to ever be able to go and break out of the cycle and their children remain slaves too as well yes there's no way for it to end mm-hmm. so essentially when the dutch show up they're not the only new players on town they're not the, they go and they align with the dutch because the portuguese the portuguese empire i think is something that like we often go and talk about the spanish colonial empire or the british colonial empire mm. or the french colonial empire portugal did a lot of shit brazil is just there you know why are all these people pe- speaking portuguese and it's like well we know right yeah <laughs> because of a long history of colonialism it's true i mean if it wasn't for i do remember this that if it wasn't for brazilian silver mines essentially silver wasn't a main form of currency nope until the portuguese had those mines and they forced indigenous people to work in those mines and then obviously indigenous people are dying off because these conditions of the mines are terrible and they're also dying from european diseases because that's what we bring Mm -hmm. to the party and so well how are we going to replenish our supplies let's steal them from africa yeah or Or like buy buy them or buy them yeah legally that's how the silver carries across the globe and, and I, then let's also go to asia and buy a bunch of stuff from asia too and that's how silver ends up in china the sheer numbers as well like i, I think it's always important to go and step outside of your knowledge base both to go and learn but also to become a little bit uncomfortable too as well our knowledge like speaking as somebody like lives in north america it's always filtered through what happened in north america but when you go down to the caribbean you go into south america there were a million enslaved african people in brazil alone at the height of it mm-hmm. just active slaves yeah and it's just it's kind of staggering when you think about it yeah like the sheer number of it commerce will reign supreme yeah people want to make their own money mm-hmm. but nzinga didn't want to do that Yes. So so tell me about, like, yeah, did she actively resist participating in the slave trade? Because how did, how is this working? So here's the thing. 
<laughs> I think, and this is something where it's always easy to go and get into, again, like, bad faith argument. Like, well, slavery's always, like, always existed. It's always existed. They did it, too. Exactly. Like, all these different reasons for either why it wasn't so bad or essentially our slavery, how we did it, European style, was the equivalent of how it was happening in other parts of the world. When it wasn't. When they are not equal. They are not happening on the same scale and they're not happening with the same ideas and intentions. Exactly. There's a difference between if you are somebody where, okay, I go and I get captured above the river that now divides, you know, nations or whatever, and I'm going to go and be transported a few hundred kilometers away versus I'm literally going to go and be shoved into the hull of a ship with hundreds of other people and I'm probably going to die. Yeah, and, and, you're, trans- and there, there's no way you can get back. Is and it- also like, there's no way that you can buy or earn your freedom. Yeah. Because you are just father. And, and where would you escape to? Exactly. More area in this strange new continent where you are trapped. Yeah. So when you're saying they're the equivalent, they're not. it's not at all. Yeah. But I mean, like, there was interaction with the slave trade with her people, for good or for bad. I think at the same time, though, in terms of because they were so against Portuguese invading of their land, too, they also really did reject a lot of Portuguese customs. I will say, though, that during her first interaction with the Portuguese as an ambassador, she did go and convert to Christianity, or like she took on a Christian name. But whether or not that actually meant anything to her or was just a political ploy, we can't ever really be certain. I feel like it was probably she was tired of people not saying her name correctly. So she was just call me Donna whatever. Oh, no. Well, actually, what was her Christian name? Donna Anna D'Souza. Yeah. So instead of having to listen to these Portuguese people mess up your name, just call me Donna Anna D'Souza and let's yeah. just call it a day. That's what I would do. We really it's want c- you to be down with Jesus. If I'm down with Jesus and you leave me alone, I'll be down with Jesus. It's sort of like the way how Elizabeth said to Mary, oh yeah, I'm down with Catholicism. And the same way that she told her super hyper conservative Protestant, oh yeah, I'm down with wearing black and white and simple clothing. And in the moment that she becomes queen, she's like, I'm peacocking around. And also, bump Catholicism, no one cares. Uh, Yeah. You go to church, I go to church, everyone gets church. Whatever you want to do, you do you, boo. You do you. Exactly. As long as you pay your taxes. Going all the way back to it, there was alignment with the Dutch West India Company, also working with alliances with other kingdoms around her too as well, particularly the Kingdom of Congo. She also went on various diplomatic missions to go and negotiate, not just with the Dutch, but again, with also the Portuguese. The one main thing was that she also went and moved her capital into as well because she was always really strategic about where to go and move the economic center mm. of her kingdom. Because then that was then going to go and bring more people in, but then also going to give them a higher chance of also then dispersing yeah, soldiers out to go and claim back land. Yeah, she was she was really smart about those types of things. Well, and it's interesting too, as opposed to having a bunch of, I'm sure she had advisors and other people around her, but it sounds like she was making, calling a lot of shots instead of just saying, I don't know, whatever you guys want to do. She had strategy. She had a way of forward thinking and thinking, okay, how do we th- not just survive, but how do we thrive? 
survive. Exactly. Yeah. And and she was always very much of a, if I go and I stick it out, and if I go and I just hold fast to the principles, it's going to go and pay off. And it did actually, eventually. Good. Because in 1657, the Portuguese basically were like, okay, we're going to go and give up our claim on your kingdom, and we're going to retreat. Uh, like, the land was basically essentially given back, quote unquote. Can you uh, give back them. something that was never yours, that you never really had? Exactly. <laughs> there was a lot of resettlement at that time. Farming was in a complete mess as well. There was a lot of economic peril with them leaving even, because there's a difference between a country at war and then a country, quote unquote, at peace. Mm. You have to go and deal with the repercussions of literally decades of conflict, right? Yeah. I mean, it's very hard to grow and to create a thriving infrastructure, agriculture, etc. If you have to put down your hoe to pick up your sword, so to speak, or your spear. That happened in 1657 and she died peacefully six years later. In 1663, she died at the age of basically 7980. All right. I know, right? In terms of her immediate family, her sisters in the novel, they existed. One of them was also baptized, but she was killed after being captured by the Portuguese. Mm. And then we don't know what happened to one of her other sisters as well. One of them did go and succeed her briefly as queen too. After she died, did the kingdom just sort of fall into the hands of the Portuguese again or? Not exactly. It was able to go and last for a little bit longer. There was a strong Portuguese presence and a strong Dutch presence too. And yeah, that's essentially a brief overview of her life, of what happened with it. Wow. I know, right? It's a lot of stuff. People are going and writing, she went and she had her male concubines murdered at points, and there's no sourcing for that. If anything, I feel like it's probably people who are saying, number one, why does she have more than maybe one man? Number two, it's evil and vile, so maybe she kills them. Dun, dun, dun. Exactly. And the thing is, is that you go and you see it on one website and then they cite to another website and they go to another website. And then I go and I find an ebook copy of a couple of books with her life and there's no mention of it. And if I miss something, please let me know. But I'm just, again, it's... You're, uh, you're trying to be a responsible historian. You're, you would rather say, look, I don't have as much stuff but frankly, you don't want to put more stuff out there if you can actually say, rubber stamp, this is probably true. Exactly. Because I think that there's enough self-aggrandizing and also enough BS making that happens quite often in history because we love a good narrative over fact. Well, and if something sounds good and you're, well, number one, it sounds good for juicy narrative purposes. But number two, maybe it could have happened and I'm too lazy to, you know, dig, dig, dig to find out, did it happen? Did it not? Eh, I'll just put it in and then I'll just give the caveat of maybe this is not true, but it's up to you to figure that one out. Then you're left with wondering you as the person who's taking this in. Okay, but what's the true part? What's the not true part? So what's the truth? So what's the truth? Exactly. <laughs> and I... I think that there's enough that goes on in terms of, again, how we talk about these women that I don't want to do that. Well, that and then also let's think about people on the African continent. There is enough stuff that goes on where it's people making assumptions one way or another. Let's talk about women as rulers. There's assumptions going one way or another. So you don't want to add to that pile. I don't, I don't need to do that. Enough people are going to do that for me. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you. But I feel like I, I want to know more stuff now. We could talk a bit about what happens 
after Nzinga dies with mm-hmm. Angola. What do you know a little bit more about Portuguese colonial history? Um, Not to go make this all about the Portuguese, by the way, but I mean, well, yeah. Well, I know that Portugal colonized Brazil, and the majority of the people who they enslaved were from the Angola, West African region, that sort of element of it. But in terms of Portugal as a colonial power, I feel like they almost get backburnered in yeah, a lot of do. history textbooks because then the focus is initially it's about the Spanish and then it's about the British and then it's about America. Mm-hmm. Like the other nations that played a role in this, they almost, it's not like they get a pass, but because they're not the biggest or whatever, I guess it's just sort of put to the side. Yeah, I think a really great illustration of that is when the Simpsons are going down to Brazil and Bart <laughs> oh goes and spends the entire flight learning Spanish, becomes fluent in it, and then Bart, <laughs> they speak Portuguese in Brazil. I tried to find mood music to listen to while I was reading this, and I discovered something. Right. Did you know that Semba mm-hmm. music is traditionally from Angola, which is the forefather of Samba music? I'm not surprised. So, Which is obviously the music of Brazil. No, duh. No, yeah. Yeah. But I'm just saying, if you want to listen to some pretty sweet Angolan jams, Semba music. <laughs> it's great. Oh, my God. <laughs> We watched that sort of crash course into Brazilian history and Mm -hmm. how I didn't know that it literally was a line down the middle of South America between the Spanish and the Portuguese. These are your people. These are our people. And basically, that's why the biggest chunk of South America, they all speak Portuguese because it's Brazil. Mm -hmm. But it's actually just one nation that actually speaks Portuguese. The rest of them speak Spanish. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yeah. What happened in Brazil and in a sense like the schism that happened after Nzinga died would get splitting off Mm -hmm. from Brazil and basically becoming the empire of Brazil which essentially happened because the the Portuguese crown prince at the time I really like this Brazil place I do not want to go back home and get to come home no oh so he decided to stay in Brazil in Brazil and just rule it as an independent nation what colony you mean my kingdom pretty much again with Angola the history is a bit haphazard not in that we don't know what happens but really trying to go and get a through line in because we picture Angola as this one nation but within it it's multi-ethnic and it was really a combination of these smaller essentially kingdoms coming together. Portugal basically gave up its attempt to conquer the interiors like let's just go and have all of our ports which is really what you want in the end. Yeah they don't they're not necessarily needing the landmass in the nation proper they just need access to it. Yeah, and then another thing, too, is that at one point, Portugal basically got low-key taken over by the Spanish crown. Also, at that time, too, the Dutch West India Company was really the up-and-coming along with the West African coasts as well. Then you have Belgium coming in, and then you have King Leopold going further into the Congo, which that is a complete nightmare if you've never read about it. Colonization in Angola was, was a slower process and really one of almost attrition until we go and we have them the scramble for Africa. 
by the time Brazil is established or anything, like that was really the main point of trade, both in the export of human beings for mm-hmm. the slave trade, but then also in terms of goods as well. Yeah. So it was very, like a very tight web, so to speak. Yeah, that triangle. Exactly. Between Brazil, Portugal, and Angola. Because mm-hmm. that's another thing, too. When you go and you look at where's the Portuguese language now, and it's the majority of speakers are in Brazil, Portugal, and then it's still Angola, right? Yeah. Portugal never really expanded much further from there. But they never really left. Exactly. And its hold was there too. Coming like the 20th century, we have the Angolan War of Independence. This War of Independence ran from 1961 to 1974. There's a little piecemeal struggle, it seems, between different factions. So are they communist? Are they socialist? Or what are they? Angola is ruled by a unitary dominant party, Presidential Constitutional Republic. They're ruled by by a far-left party. Okay. Which is founded by Marxist revolutionaries, which is why Angola currently still has the most badass flag on the planet. Am I considered... Doesn't it still have, like, a sickle or a hammer on it? No, no, no. It has a gear... With a machete and a star. Look at that flag. Yeah, there's a, there's no question what they're all about. Yeah, and also there was apparently a motion or something that was put forward in Parliament about 20 years ago. Let's go make a more optimistic maybe, flag. Maybe we should temper this down, not be so aggressive at the UN, and forget that. So what were those other proposed flags? Okay, just for your own curiosity, so there were two proposals, according to crwflags.com. One in 1996, which is basically a tricolor horizontal stripes of red, green, and black. Okay, so Um, basically what they have minus the machete and the gear and the star. Well, yeah, but also adding in green. Oh, okay. And then there was a proposal that was done in 2003, which, how would you describe this? So it's blue, white, red, a blue stripe and a white stripe together at the top and at the bottom in the middle, there's a big red field. And then there's sort of a very, uh, 10,000 villages looking sun symbol. I think, it, I think they were going for a cave painting homage right there because they wanted to be more optimistic. At least that's what the info is telling me. I mean, I, I dig it, but the color scheme is so different from what they had previously that mm-hmm. I would I would, I would would not think, oh, this is a revamp of the old one. Yeah. So what does their flag actually mean? So according to what I've found is that, as outlined in the Constitution of Angola, the red half of the flag signifies bloodshed during Angola's colonial period, independence struggle, and in defense of the country, and the black half symbolizes Africa. The central emblem, the gear, represents industrial workers and production. The machete represents peasantry, agricultural production, and the armed struggle. And the star, shaped like the red star, symbolizes international solidarity and progress. The yellow color of the emblem symbolizes the country's wealth. This is our past. This is our people. Exactly. And part of that, too, is Nzinga, right? With Nzinga as a figure, she is really somebody who she stood up against the people 
who were trying to go and occupy the land that she grew up on, who really wanted to go and erase her people. But at the same time, though, she was really able to go endure as a cultural myth without getting too bastardized away from who she was. For Nzinga, her cultural legacy is she really is still viewed in the way that she really was. Yeah. Whereas she is sort of the last figurehead of this independent nation, as it was. The name for Angola comes from Nugola, right? Which mm-hmm. is the name for a leader, right? Yes. So that legacy is still there, even with the country's name. You want to talk about a figure who, she isn't made by the Portuguese. She's not propped up by the Portuguese. Yeah. She's there in her own right as this person that they can look to. It wasn't just a puppet queen. Yes. It was a real ruler for a great people kind of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Which mm-hmm. I think has a lot of value for a lot of people because how many great leaders you have versus puppet or figurehead. That is definitely a part of her legacy, but I think that's also why she's just such an interesting person too though as well because we again have the thing where none of these women were supposed to be queen if they were actual rulers. I guess one thing that I'll say is disappointing, it is always hard to know is who's well known outside of the historical circles, outside of the circles of people who care about royals. Mm-hmm. How well is the name of Nzinga known? Not that well known. And I it's shameful you. because I feel like she is above and and on par. She's definitely above some of the other people who we've encountered in mm-hmm. terms of what they've accomplished or what they're yep. about. Yep. Or she's at least on par if you're going to, you know, talk about Elizabeth I and Gloriana and all this other stuff. Nzinga is basically like that. Yeah. If not better. Because she wasn't because, trying to actively shitty and colonize other people. Well, and also, I feel like with Nzinga, she, I feel like she was kind of like almost like a one-woman show, which Elizabeth definitely was not. I think that's the thing where because history has a really limited view of what makes a decent primary source mm. or a good secondary source and because non-European ways of knowing and archiving information are not taken as seriously, I think about how much information really could have been lost about her that was around. Yeah, but people didn't recognize it for what it was. So like your same story with, you know, you sharing of a wampum belt, people would say, oh, that's just beautiful jewelry or that's nice. But someone's saying, no, this is the story of our people. But if you took the time to ask us, you'd know this and mm-hmm. you wouldn't just sell it off for parts and jewelry. Exactly. So who knows what kind of things were involved for Nzinga's story mm-hmm. or like, you know, telling the story with the, with drums or something like that. Or, you know, also there's probably a lot written in Portuguese, but <laughs> I don't read Portuguese, so there's no way I'm going to know. Fair enough. Anyways, any final thoughts on this, this book? And also, I think maybe the general Eurocentric construct of royalty and power. <laughs> I I think the same way that there's plenty of merchandising being put out there about a lot of other queens who frankly didn't do a lot of ruling. Mm -hmm. Zynga was not just a queen, but she was a ruler. I Mm -hmm. wish there was more of that kind of stuff out there. I wish this book was longer. I would have loved to learn more. If anyone were to write the autobiography of Zynga, huge book, because we write huge books about the Tudors Mm -hmm. and historical fiction about that for days and days and days. Where's more Nzinga fic? Mm-hmm. That's what I want to read because this lady is baller and she deserves more than this, this tiny book. <laughs> I agree. My final thoughts are is how this is really Patricia McKissack's past, passion project. Mm. 
and how she really tried to go and bring to light and intervene in a series that up to this point is isn't pretty b- white. Pretty white. I mean, Cleopatra's not, but you know, even then, it's a whole other thing. Exactly. And we we talked about that, right? But I think that what I will always go and take away from this book is that it's important to go and think outside of your own context and also it's okay to be a little bit uncomfortable too and to go and say I don't know this what can I go and I learn next and not to just hold on to your preconceived notions about what is a royal and what is a princess exactly because if there's anybody who definitely was a queen it was Nzinga classic amazing follow us for more research fun facts soundtracks and aesthetic posts you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter at Royal Diaries Pod.